Welcome to the Lixnall 1752 podcast with me, James Moran, Richard Walsh and Shane Connolly. Hello, hello, hello. So this is episode five and we're talking to a historian called Declan Downey, mm-hmm. who is an expert in modern European history. Did I get that right? Early modern. Early, early modern. Uh, early modern. I remember I corrected it. He corrected me at one point because I said the wrong thing and he said, I'm not a medievalist. Um, <laughs> you said early history and he was like no no it's early modern oh uh, was that a yeah yeah I did like that he was like I'm not a medievalist I don't know anything about that and then for the first 10 minutes of the podcast he uh, outlines the structure of the medieval Catholic church yeah you know? it's like if that's <laughs> if that's not his topic of interest you know and he seemed to know a lot about uh, an area that wasn't his topic of interest so yeah 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 so Dick, how did you come across Declan Downey and why did you get him for the podcast? Um, well, actually, I kind of came across him um, because he's on our family tree and my mother was organizing a gathering and the two of them became good friends. And so then when I was in, I didn't really know him, but then when I was doing this project, you know, I was told to, to talk to him, so. Simple as that. I, okay. I, I, I spoke to him and um, he has been very good, very recommended a lot of the books that have clarified the era for me. And uh, he's had a lot of interesting things to say, for sure, for sure. Yeah, it was a bit of a coincidence because you have friends who were lectured by him. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So since then I brought up his name and very often I've had the experience of people going, Declan Downey, they've had him as a teacher or they've encountered him. And then they're also like, he's related to you <laughs> because he's quite, he's, he's quite well spoken. He's quite posh. And, uh, and they're like, what? He's related to you. So this is a surprise for people, but uh, it's distant relation, but it's, uh, it's nonetheless, you know. Um, yeah. You're related to a man with three knighthoods. He's got three knighthoods. Yeah. Yeah. He's been, uh, uh, not, her- not hereditary, but they were awarded by Spain, Austria and Malta. The order, Malta. the order of Malta. So, why did you think he'd be interested for the podcast? What did you think he'd bring to the table? Well, uh, just from our, our conversations with him, um, he has a very, very good knowledge of uh, the relationships between Ireland and Europe at the time, and <clears throat> which was predominantly a relationship between our aristocracy who were kicked out and uh, fled to Europe and became involved with the aristocracy in Europe. And so the links between Ireland and Europe are happening at the level of aristocrats, you know. And um, our, what's the word, uh, our brothers, (laughs) Irish brothers in Europe. I know there's a word for that. Our Irish brothers in Europe. uh, Diaspora? The diaspora, the Irish diaspora. uh, Well, I think a number of them um, became... Prime ministers and chancellors in I think Spain had two Irish diaspora. Uh, so when we think of uh, JFK as being like the first Irish person to, to lead a, or an ancestrally Irish person to lead a world power, that that he wasn't. Um, they have been the leaders in Spain and Germany and Austria, I think, uh, prior to this. And I think one interesting way this expressed was expressed was through the training of irish priests mm-hmm. in um europe 
yeah. particularly France. Yeah. Because the priests would have been men with ties to the aristocracy. Yeah. In Ireland and abroad. Isn't that right? Because they were the only people who could afford to train to be priests were those who had uh, come from a very very wealthy background. You'd have to come from a very wealthy background. And, um, and you know, like this is what I kind of, it's counterintuitive. It's not, it's probably what, not what I think myself instinctively, but Declan does paint a picture that the upper class take care of the ordinary people. And he paints a picture of these gentry, if that's the right word, uh, gentry priests coming back and having a very tolerant and indulgent pastoral, is that the right word? Like seeing that, yeah, seeing the Shane, people as their were, flock, you know, and um, and so he. Shane, you were saying something similar that you were surprised at how pastoral priests tended to be. Yeah, in this period. Well, yes, I guess so. I think we've come across this idea before that the the people look up to the big house, as we were talking about the Lixnaw House, as you know, they are there to look after us, hmm. you know. But perhaps this, uh, you know, what he was talking about. Makes me think that there's a, an extension towards priests as well. That the priests are there to look after us as well. Yeah. The, really, what struck me is it, the way he describes it is that being a Catholic and the whole Catholic Church and the whole Catholic network is a completely different experience as it is now. Mm-hmm. And I think he means that. I think he goes on to explain. I think it just means that what we're talking about, a little bit more pastoral, a little bit more tolerant, a little bit more in tune with what is going on, with that little sprinkling of they come from wealthy families, but also a lot more in tune and practical and tolerant and all that yeah. uh, of of normal people, of the people of North Kerry. Mm-hmm. I think it's worth so, pointing out... Um, go on, Nick. Uh, a character that that I didn't know until I uh, until this chat was uh, Cardinal Cullen. From what I gather, in a very simple explanation, Cardinal Cullen is is uh, born in eighteen o three, and he was involved in setting up minute training of priests back in Ireland, and he brought a very intolerant version of Catholicism into Ireland, and it's it's the form of Catholicism that we now know, you know. Um, and so to me, that's a simplification by me to say that, but I think that's what's seen it, that, um, that the older form of Catholicism, which was more aligned with gentry and was much more tolerant, and that we now have a much more intolerant form. Maybe just before we go into it, uh, we're writing a character called, in our play who's a priest. Yeah. How do you think this interview informs that character? Well, that's... That's what I am <clears throat> interested in this character because he is going to be from um, a gentry background, you know, a wealthy background. And so he comes back, he wants to bring back the Catholic Church in Ireland, but also his interests are very much aligned with the wealthy because that's his family, that's where he's from, and not necessarily in the interests of the poor. Well, there's a, there's a conflict going on there, right? So our, our project's looking at like, how poor people and poor labourers got more and more and more squeezed um, as kind of capitalist forces took took hold in Ireland. And uh, here's this priest who's looking to take care of his flock, but is very much aligned with the wealthy. And I think he is looking to make sure that Catholics gain and rich Catholics gain wealth and regain their kind of position of power within Ireland. And of course... In capitalism, for people to get wealthy, 
it comes at the expense of the poor. Now, maybe people don't agree with that, but that's kind of how I see it. And so I see him as someone kind of torn in some way. Potentially. I'm trying to understand that character in that way. Uh, is it benign or is it is it a, a force for bad? So the first couple of minutes of this podcast are very information heavy. It really starts off with a run. Yeah. And, uh, it can be a bit overwhelming, but I think it's all useful to understand how the structure of the church came to be. Yeah. And uh, what sort of political environment this priest would have existed in at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll get into it. Yeah, let's get into it. <laughs> um, so welcome to Lex Law 1752. Thank you. Uh, which is a podcast we're doing as part of our research. And... Uh, so to the audience, we have our guest here today, Dr. Declan Downey, Professor of Early European History. Did I get that right? Early and Japanese modern, Early Modern. modern I think uh, I was medievalist if you say Early European. <laughs> oh, really? And uh, Japanese History. And you're a specialist in the Irish wild geese, the uh, Irish abroad, not the uh, yeah. geese. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming. My pleasure. So I understand you want me to talk a little bit about background to the character of Father Murphy. Yeah. Who appears in your play. Well, the first thing to bear in mind is that the Catholic Church in Ireland in the middle of the 18th century was a completely different experience as well as a completely different organization to what came subsequently in the 19th century under Cardinal Cullen. Okay. So what you're dealing with first here is a church that isn't as institutionalized. Right. Now, there are certain loose structures. You still have bishops being appointed in Ireland, but not all the bishops are resident in Ireland because yeah. of the penal laws. Some of them are abroad, and some who are in the country keep a very low profile. Yeah. And those who are abroad, they govern their diocese through the diocesan chapters. Okay. So it's a much more democratic church in terms of the institution. By democratic, you mean sort of the power is the power rests the with a group of clergy okay and some lay people there were really lay, there were lay canons as well as clerical canons that is so, surprising yeah so when for instance say uh, a bishop needed to be appointed in mm -hmm. an irish diocese the laity and clergy would gather now you would have 12 clergymen who would have been titular canons forming the diocesan chapter. Okay. And there would be up to 12, not always 12, but up to 12 lay people of significance. So a, a diocese is the same as it means today. 
Yes. It would be the dioceses as we have them today were the same dioceses that existed in the 18th century. Okay, goes all the way back to the 12th century. Oh, really? Yeah. No, the well, no, that wouldn't be the schism. I take it. It would have been a uh, hundred years after the Great Schism. Well, yes, um, but the, the diocese in Ireland date back to the 12th century mm. reforms to 1111 AD, in fact. Okay. So even before the arrival of the Normans in Ireland, there were these dioceses. Now, Ireland has over 32 bishops, whereas England doesn't have the same number of dioceses or bishops at all. We have four archbishops, whereas England has only two. Oh, really? Yet England is much larger. Now, the reason for that is because the dioceses that were established in Ireland in the 12th century followed the lines of the various lordships of the Gaelic, Irish, and the lordships of the Vikings or the Norse, Irish. Okay. So, for example, um, if you take the area of North Mayo... Yeah. There you have a small little diocese called Kilala. Okay. And beside it, there's another small diocese called Aconry. Mm. And just north of them, there's another small diocese called Elfin. And then to the south, there's a small diocese called Anachdown. Okay. And then there's a much larger diocese called the Archdiocese of Tume. But because the local ruling families controlling these areas of North Mayo... Um, they decided they wanted their own bishop. So the uh, papal legate uh, to the Synod of Rathbrazel was the Norse Bishop of Limerick, Gilbert. And Limerick, Waterford, Dublin, these would have been dioceses that were run along a European model because of the Norsemen or the Vikings who had Christianized and being in contact with Europe much close, in a much more closer manner than, say, the Gaelic-Irish. Mm -hmm. So when they were forming the diocese, many of the lordships wanted their own bishops. Really? And then some very powerful monasteries did not want to give up their episcopal status either. So here in Shannon side of North Kerry, Limerick and Clare, we have one of these situations. For example, Scattery Island, dedicated to St. Senan in the middle of the Shannon estuary between oh, yeah. North Kerry and Clare. We are at his uh, holy well there recently. You are. Well, he's a patron saint here in North Kerry. Mm -hmm. Well, Senan was of the Kiri Luacher tribe. Okay. And the Kiri Luacher and the Kiri Altri were the tribes who controlled this part of the country, Limerick, West Limerick, North Kerry particularly, mm. and West Clare, both sides of the Shannon. Okay. Now we're going back thousands of years. Right. So Senan is of this, uh, the Kiri Altri group of the Kiri Luacher, and he is the one who goes over to tour in Gaul or France. Mm. That's where he's or studies for the priesthood. That's where he's ordained. He goes on to Rome. He's ordained a bishop in Rome. He returns to his tribe. Mm -hmm. And he establishes his monastery on the island of Scattery. And from Scattery Island, Senan 
sent his monks, his followers, out to Christianize the Shannon estuary on both sides of the estuary, counties Clare, North Kerry and Limerick. Okay. So on the Clare side, his territory, his monastic jurisdiction extended from Loophead in West Clare all the way over to Kilidicert on the Fergus estuary into the Shannon River just there above Foynes. And on the south side of the River Shannon, his diocese extended from Ballybunion all the way down to the Cashin, Ratu mm. Abbey would have been part of it, extending right across the plain of North Kerry, taking in Lixnaw itself, because there's Kilshanan in Lixnaw Parish, Church of Senan, and his D-shirt or his place of retreat uh, was near Lixnaw as well. And then it ex- his diocese extended eastwards into County Limerick all the way up to Askeaton and Shanna oh, yeah. Golden and Foynes. And they're also dedicated to St. Senan. Mm-hmm. So all over this land tract between West Limerick and North Kerry, you have churches and holy wells and places associated with St. Senan. After... 1111 AD, with the establishment of the diocese in Ireland along a Roman continental model, you had the monastic diocese of Senon was split between Killaloo, the diocese of Killaloo on the Clare side, the diocese of Limerick, mm. and the diocese of Ardfert, which is the old name for the diocese of Kerry. Okay. It's not until the 1950s that the name was changed officially from Artfert and Ahadou to Kerry. Oh, really? Yeah. I, so, I've seen the church in Artfert. Yeah. Mm. So, so the thing is, is that even though Senon's monastic sees was divided, mm-hmm. there was still a monastic control from Scattery over certain churches in North Kerry and West Limerick. For example, the churches in Ahavallen, Ballylongford, Kilnockton, which is Tarbert, mm-hmm. Kilmurley and Kilfergus, which are in Glynn, they were Terman lands or sanctuary lands that were still paying tithes or supports one-tenth of their harvest to the monastery in Scattery Island. Okay. And... Oh, sorry, what do you mean by sanctuary lands? Well, these would have been lands that were set aside for the church. Right. To support a monastery. Okay. And the tenant farmers there, they had very good privileges of working the land they only had to give a tenth, a tithe, mm. a tenth of their harvest yield to the monastery. Okay. So they kept 90% for themselves of what they produced. That was a lot. That was a good it's deal. A lot. Time, yeah. And all of that changed with the Reformation when Henry VIII came along and mm. Cromwell and Elizabeth and the rest of them. So, But we're talking about going way back in time there to medieval times. Right. But even down until the beginning of the 19th century, mm-hmm. The Bishop of Limerick had the right of appointing 12 canons to the Collegiate Church Major in Scattery Island. The okay. Bishop of Killaloo had a right of appointing 12 canons there as well. But the Limerick canons lived on the Kerry side. Okay. So as part of that jurisdiction, even though 
the parish priest in Ballylongford was in the Diocese of Artford. Mm-hmm. The Bishop of Limerick commissioned him to act as his representative to the people on the southern side of Scattery Island. I see. So this gives you a sense of the overlap of jurisdictions in the Irish church at mm. that time. It's, it's a, all very it's confusing, a, isn't it? It is. It, uh, you, you always think of the church as being so organized with, yeah. with regards to geography, at least, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and so centralized. Yes. You normally think of it as just Rome. Well, there you have it. The centralization of the Catholic Church in mm. Ireland really comes in the 19th century. So before... So say we're talking about this character, he would have existed in sort of a... A much looser jurisdiction. But probably more political. Very it? much political. And we know, for instance, that in in uh, the Diocese of Artfert and Ahado, which was the old name for Kerry, that uh, many of the prominent Catholic gentry families in Kerry... Mm-hmm. Uh, who had continued past the penal times and that into into the early 19th century, many of those families were called in and consulted with the canons, the clerical canons. Okay. So they form a chapter. Right. And the laity and the clergy of the diocese would decide on three names that they would select these names were sent to the internuncio in Brussels. Mm-hmm. And he would forward those names on to Rome. The internuncio. Yeah. The internuncio in Brussels. He yes. is like a... He's the papal representative mm-hmm. for Northern Europe. Oh, in, really? Yeah. Okay. The, what you have is in Brussels, what is then Habsburg, Netherlands, mm-hmm. There is an internuncio appointed. So he is responsible for the Catholics in England, in Scotland, in Ireland, in Scandinavia, what are called Protestant countries. Oh, really? The official Protestant states. And where there isn't an officially recognized Catholic church. Mm-hmm. And if there are penal laws in place against Catholics, such as in England and Scotland and Ireland, then the internuncio has responsibility for the overall pastoral care of Catholics and for appointing bishops or dignitaries in the church. Also, if there are cases, say, where a priest needs to refer a case to a canonical court, and it's not possible to hold that canonical court in Ireland, mm-hmm. and especially if it involves dispensations, say, two cousins wanting to marry each other. Okay. Very often they would request the internuncio in Brussels to grant the dispensation. I see. So the internuncio in Brussels would receive a letter from the Chapter General of Kerry, mm. or in this case, the Chapter General of Ardfertinahadu. Okay. And that Chapter General consisted of 12 clerical canons and up to 12 lay canons. Right. And these would have been the principal Catholic 
gentry families in Kerry or leading merchant families in Kerry. So, like the Rices and Dingle, for, for instance. Or okay. The Fitzgeralds, the O'Connors, Kerry, people the, like that. Politically influential. Politically influential to some degree. They would have been the leading Catholics. The Earl of Kenmare, for instance, the Browns of Kenmare. Okay. They were Catholic peers. And would it have been seen, um, would it have been as overt as that? Like, were they, were they canons because they were politically influential or was there an idea of virtue associated? Well, there is virtue, of course. I mean, the, you know, there would have been well, well-educated priests mm. and reasonably educated laity, but laity who have influence in okay. the local community. So these people would decide who they wanted as a bishop. They would select three names and forward them to the Internuncio in Brussels. Mm -hmm. And he would then forward his recommendations with the names to Rome. Rome would respond. And they usually selected one of those names. Now, in instances where Rome didn't select from the names given and they imposed a bishop who was not wanted, very often those bishops didn't survive very long because they didn't get support in the locality and very often they were forced to go back into exile and to resign. We have instances of that too. This reminds me of how judges are appointed now. It's almost exactly the same format, isn't it? To some some degree there are parallels, yes. Um, Was it often that that Rome would sort of try to impose its own... No. No. Was it very, very often Rome followed the guidelines of the local clergy and later. Okay. So what you have is that um, bishops would be more accountable to their laity and clergy and bishops acted in collegiality with their laity and clergy so it wasn't a case of a bishop making a decision and everyone obeying it without mm. question. Very often bishops had to consult and listen to advice and a decision was made collectively, the bishop in chapter. Yeah. So you use the word accountable. Yeah. Could they've also just been, what's the word, like beholden to these people? Was it an element? It was a cronyism, as we would know today. Not quite. Okay. Not always. Not always. No. No. Not quite. Uh, Some of these bishops, you must remember, were members of religious orders. There weren't diocesan clergy. Okay. And in practically most cases, bishops and priests had their own sources of income. They right. came from reasonably comfortable or well-to-do families, strong farmers, merchants, or sons of doctors. Okay, so, mi- so middle classes. They would have, to... yeah, what you'd call the 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 middling classes or the the emerging middle class, the bourgeoisie of the time. But they wouldn't be as a as a son of the earl. Wouldn't become 
Well, if the son of an earl had become a Catholic, or if the yeah. son of a nobleman, a Catholic nobleman who would remain Catholic, yes, some of them would. Now, for instance, the Archbishop of, but- of Butler of Cashel. Yeah. Uh, there were three in succession uh, during the 17th and 18th centuries. They were all related to each other. There were butlers of Kilkash. Mm. They would have been from the Catholic nobility. They were protected by their Protestant cousin, the Earl or the Duke of Ormond. Okay. And that, so, you know, there are elements of that. And, yeah. uh, you know, when, uh, for instance, some Catholic noblemen conformed to the church by law established, in other words, became Protestant mm. in order to protect their lands or to protect their relatives' lands, very often they gave protection to their Catholic relatives and to Catholic priests as well. Okay. So, for instance, here in this region, safe houses for priests would have been, say, for instance, the Knight of Glynn was Mm. well known, uh, even though they had converted in the middle of the 18th century to Protestantism. Glynn Castle was a safe house for priests in the locality. Was that an official realm? Or was was that an official realm of, say, the Knight of Glynn? An official role? As in, was it understood that he would do that? Or? Not necessarily that he was understood, no. It was purely voluntary. Okay, and it wasn't... Was but it, it illegal? Was, there were certain social expectations in the locality, yes. Okay, course, I see. Yeah. But officially, no, you're talking about an official state that is Protestant. Yeah, that's what I, I was wondering. No, no, no. no okay. No. What they didn't know didn't bother them. It I was see. a case of don't ask, don't tell, in other words. Okay. So there's a lot of that blind eye going on. Even the Protestant um, uh, landlord um, uh, in certain cases was known to have given shelter to uh, Catholic priests and bishops. Really? For example, the Southwells in County Limerick Mm -hmm. uh, who had uh, come into possession of their estates around Adair and Rathkeel and Eskeaton um, the middle of the 17th century, they were known to have sheltered Catholic priests, even though they were Protestants, even though they were actually of Cromwellian origin. Really? So they had given shelter. The Blenner Hassets in Tralee, Mm -hmm. out there in Ballyseedy, they were also a safe house for many Catholic clergy in times of persecution. Okay. So, um, you know, there are all of these other instances as well. And of course, the leading peer in Kerry at this time was the Earl of Kenmare, who was a Catholic, Mm. and quite openly so. Really? So, um, you know, when we look at the penal times, it's it's a case of looking at individual cases. It's, It's very nuanced. Yeah. And that, and it wasn't always a case of constant persecution. Very often the state Protestant authorities turned a blind eye if things were done quietly and clandestinely. We're always told that the penal laws are very enthusiastic, you know, that they really continuously came down very hard on the Catholics. Not always. But that's not the There are periodic periods of persecution Mm. and it often depended on local situations as well and the attitudes of local Protestant officials. Okay. Mm. And with the fact that Kerry was sort of inaccessible, relatively inaccessible. Mm, 
it wasn't quite that inaccessible, no. Uh, it was a good distance from Dublin and London, yes. Mm. But, um, I mean, here in North Kerry, the Sanses, for instance, were a Cromwellian family who had gained lands between Ballylongford, Tarberton, and my that. Okay. But the Sanses were notorious Cromwellians and were notorious fundamentalist Protestants. Very Calvinistic. Now, they even caused trouble within the Anglican Church in Ireland because they were so Calvinistic and that, and very radical and that. that. So, but they would have been known to have, you know, gone priest hunting and things like that. Um, priest time hunting. To time, yeah. But then that was periodic. It depended on some, because some Sanses were notorious for persecution attitudes mm. towards Catholics. But then there were other members of that family who were less so. Right. What was, was priest hunting what it sounds like? Was it going out in the hunt for a priest? Or was it? Well, usually... It's in times of a threat of an invasion from, say, Catholic Spain or Catholic France. Okay. That's usually when priests were rounded up. Okay. And that, and that's when you'd have the priest hunts generally um, because there was a fear that priests were encouraging people to join an invasion force from France or Spain. And were they? Well, some did. Okay. But not all. It wasn't there, again, it's individual cases. It seems like priests had more, of, much more of an individual. Uh, they were individual, yes. Going back to our friend Father Murphy and the background he'd have come from, either a strong farming background or a wealthy merchant background. Mm. Um, these would have been the the general backgrounds of the clergy. Most of them would have been merchant sons, actually. And in the 18th century, most priests in Ireland were educated in colleges in France. Okay. Now, some were also educated in colleges in Spain and Portugal. But there was a proliferation of Irish colleges in France during the 18th century. Leuven is somewhere else you associate. Leuven is in Spanish Flanders. Yeah, but it it wouldn't be... Well, is it? It's somewhere I always associate with Irish monks. Well, there were there were a number of Irish colleges in Leuven. You had mm. the Irish Franciscan College, the most famous one. Then there was the Irish Pastoral College for diocesan clergy, and there was the Irish Dominican College for the Dominican Fathers. Okay. So uh, there are three uh, major Irish colleges in Leuven, and then there's a Jesuit college in Leuven at which many Irish. Jesuits were educated along with English and Scottish Jesuits and uh, Jesuits going to Scandinavia. So uh, the Collegium Regium then in Leuven was also founded for missionary priests in northern European Protestant countries. Okay. So you have a number of colleges. Now, in terms of um, geographical distributions, a lot of people from Ulster tended to go to Leuven. Okay. Whereas a lot of people from Munster went to Bordeaux in France or Paris or else they went to Toulouse or else they went to Salamanca and Santiago de Compostela in Spain or to Lisbon. 
So usually you can trace it as well to where there is a strong local mercantile link. And there were very strong mercantile links between Kerry, for instance, and Limerick with the Irish colleges in Nantes, in Bordeaux, and in Paris, Lisbon, and um, Santiago de Compostela. Yeah, we found one source and it was complaining that the Irish around the area spoke too much Spanish. They spoke more Spanish than they spoke English. Yes, a lot. That's from an earlier period in the 16th and 17th centuries. Mm. Most of the clergy were educated in Spanish territories. And um, Archbishop Oliver Plunkett of Armagh, who was declared a saint back in 1975, he was martyred, he complained when he came to Ireland as Archbishop of Armagh at the end of the 17th century that most of the priests he had encountered were educated in Spain and they, to quote him, he said, they breathed nothing but Spain. Their attitudes were Spanish, their culture was Spanish and they were very pro-Spanish politically. Okay. And so, you know, there was a strong pro-Spanish Habsburg element among the Irish who wanted to break away from English rule. I see. And that goes back to the 16th century and alliances between the Earls of Desmond and Philip II of Spain and later alliances between O'Neill and O'Donnell up in the north and Mm. the uh, Philip II and later Philip III of Spain. So there was always a strong Spanish element there. But when we're dealing with the 18th century and the period of which the play is set and specific here to North Kerry, most of the clergy in the Kerry diocese were educated in France. Okay. Mainly in Bordeaux or in Nantes. And when you go through the lists of the Kerry priests who were ordained during that time, you will see that France is predominant. And Many of these priests, when they returned to Ireland, they acted as tutors to families. They acted as head schoolmasters. Mm. All of them had to have a degree in either the arts, humanities, or in the sciences. And was that a French influence? No. No. It's a rule from the Council of Trent. Okay. Now... The Council of Trent back in the 16th century Mm. demanded very high standards of education from the clergy. So the curriculum that priests would have followed then from the 16th century right through the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, right up until the 1960s, 70s, and then everything changed after Mm. the Second Vatican Council. But up until then... It was in canon law. Every priest had to have a degree in the secular sciences Hmm. before going on to study a degree in the sacred sciences. So their first degree would have been in the arts of the humanities or in medicine or in the physical sciences as they were then known, particularly chemistry, they would train as apothecaries, mm. what we now call pharmacists. Okay. And they had to have a degree and a professional qualification in the secular sciences, as they were called, to sustain themselves in the world. Because 
many of the people they would have been ministering to were poor. Mm-hmm. So they had to have a source of income, especially if they were living in a country where there were penal laws against Catholics, like in Ireland or in England. Mm-hmm. So what you have, these Irish priests going abroad, they'd spend up to 10 years in a continental college these Irish seminaries or colleges abroad were attached to the universities. Mm. So they would go out there and they would do a course of studies for one year in the college itself to bring them up to speed with the standards of the university they were going into. So it's like a very intensive course that they would have done. Okay. And then they would have to do the matriculation exam, get into the university, do their degree courses in the university. After the first three, four years of their primary degree in a secular science, they were then admitted to study for philosophy and theology. It is surprising that they had to do a secular science. Like you always think of them as being in opposition. Well, it was never in opposition. This Mm. is a modern fallacy that science and religion are in opposition to each other. They're not. Uh, Fundamentalist Christians uh, of the Baptists and people like that, they have a problem about, uh, you know, science. But Catholics don't. But even the old stories, say, with um, Galileo, Discover you know, talking about the movement of the planet. Yeah. The stories always seem to put the scientist sort of... At variance with the church, yeah. but that wasn't the case. If you actually go through the actual records of Galileo's yeah. case, that wasn't the issue. There were other matters. Really? Yes. And there were matters at which Galileo was at variance with other scientists at the time, astronomers and mathematicians. Mm. And that, so, um, you know, Galileo's following in a long tradition uh, before him. And um, so his, uh, he didn't, he did, while he was forced to recant uh, on certain things, it wasn't really the issue about the movement of the sun mm-hmm. or the planets or anything like that. Uh, it, uh, I think it was his his questioning of Aristotelianism that got him into trouble. And there was, you also have to understand that there were vested interests at the time. It was more a political decision, Mm. not a theological one. So later on, as we know, Galileo was exonerated. Yeah. But Galileo didn't lose his faith. He still remained a practicing Catholic right to the end of his days. And, you know, he, he wasn't severely punished. Mm-hmm. And he was protected, in fact, and given a pension by the papacy. Was he? Yeah. So the thing is, is that um, you have to understand that there was no problem. Catholics regard the Old Testament as a collection of stories Mm. that illustrate things. But the Old Testament does not have primacy. No. It's the New Testament, the four Gospels, 
relating to Christ's life that have primacy. So this is the difference between a Catholic and a Protestant. A fundamentalist, Bible-thumping Protestant will quote more often from the Old Testament than from the New Testament. You yeah, often see that. It's where the hardcore stuff... And the hardcore stuff is all in the Old Testament. Mm. Now, to a Catholic, a classical Catholic, that's wrong. And this is where you have the fissures of the Reformation developing. Mm. Um, we're digressing again here, but back at the time of the Reformation, what you had were various scholars... <laughs> Uh, biblical scholars who said, well, let's go back to what it was like living in the time of Christ. They felt that the medieval church had gone too far away from the early Christian church. Okay. They don't recognize, or they didn't seem to recognize, that tradition is organic. Tradition is something that grows and progresses. It's Mm. not hidebound. So... You had some of these people saying, let's return to the early church and what it was like and recreate it. Now, that's under the influence of the Renaissance with the return to Greek and Roman literature and ideas and art and architecture, etc. It's part of the spirit of the age of the 15th and 16th centuries. And you have people like Erasmus and others saying, well, you know, we need to look at the scriptures again and what sort of world did Christ live in? Yeah. Well, he grew up as a Jew in the Jewish world. Mm. So this took an interest in Judaism. Uh. And that's where the Old Testament starts coming back into prominence in theological circles. I didn't know that. And then you have certain theologians saying, well, you know, this is the purer form of Christianity. It's closer to Judaism. And we have to interpret the word of Christ through the Old Testament. Okay. But then the Catholic theologians who were traditional argued against that. And they said, well, no. Uh, Christ himself said he came to change the old law. Mm -hmm. And you have to interpret the Old Testament through the prism of the New Testament. And Christ rejected an awful lot of the old Jewish laws. Yeah. And this is where you have the division theologically. And you have this idea of only scripture, sola scriptura. This is the the fundamental point of the the primitive Christians, as they like to call themselves. Mm. And those who embraced... Calvinism, which is a very extreme form of Protestantism in it the is, 16th and yeah. 17th century. Like, Predeterminization, you know, isn't it? It's, it's where they, you know, you just read through the sermons of John Calvin or John Knox mm. or any of the great Calvinist theologians of the 17th and 18th centuries, even down to the present. You don't have to go very far from here to hear them up north. No. And they often refer to the Old Testament and to books of the Old Testament, Mm. like Leviticus or Deuteronomy or Numbers or whatever, instead of referring to the New Testament. And certainly very rarely do they refer to the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, Luke or John. So this is the difference. And as I said, we were all taught in the old catechism, Adam and Eve and that story 
the story of creation, all of that, this is all part of the Jewish tradition. Mm. And we accept it as part of a Jewish tradition. We don't take it literally. So for a member of the Catholic Church, this would have been a very active debate. You know, yeah. I think at the moment, religions tend to take a very... Uh, well, you see, we've had the influence in the last 50 years of American evangelical Protestantism, mm-hmm. even in the Irish Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're a little bit too young, but I remember in the 1970s and 80s, after the Second Vatican Council, our liturgies were ruined. Yeah. Uh, Gregorian chant and polyphony and all that was thrown out and instead we got the bongo drums and the guitars <laughs> and all this Southern Baptist nonsense yeah. and the charismatic movement, what I call the charismaniac <laughs> movement because it was all Southern Baptist stuff. Yeah, And that crept into the Irish church and country and Western music replacing sacred music. I, now, been, country been, and Western music has its place in the dance hall, hmm. but not in a church. I've been to the Tridentine Mass as okay. well in Dublin, mm-hmm. and it's a bit of a shock, going back to the old way of doing things, yes. isn't it? Lots it, of periods of silence to yeah. reflect, um, but very elegant music. No, it is beautiful. Uplifting, yes. Mm. Air of mystery. Um Anyhow, we've digressed a lot. Let's get back to Father Murphy and the sort of world he would have been in. He would have had, as I said, to have studied for a secular science. And then after graduation with his first degree, he was admitted to study for theology. Okay. And after theology, he would have studied maybe canon law or some specialist area of theology. Because up until the 1980s, Every Irish diocese in the calendarium of the Catholic Church had highly educated priests. You saw their names, you saw their list of degrees after their names, you saw their specializations, publications, etc. Yeah. It's amazing, an eye-opener. Nowadays we have priests who can hardly put a sentence together and give a decent sermon. It's true, I wouldn't argue and as for speaking Latin or any other language, they don't have it. Yeah. But Latin is a great language because it is an economy of words, it's elegant, and it also is logical. I'm learning Latin and at you, the moment. Oh, excellent. Yeah, or I'm great. teaching myself, rather. Good for you. Mm-hmm. Good for you. Which opens up a whole new world to you, and especially when you read the classics, ancient world. That's the reason I want to do it. Good. You know? Well, it'll be a most wonderful experience for you. Mm-hmm. And if I had my way, it would be a compulsory subject in school, as it is in continental Europe. I mean, and that's why yeah. the Dutch and the Germans and the Austrians and the French and the Spanish can all learn languages quite well. Yeah. And if we introduced Latin back into our curriculum up to the age of 16, our students would be far better able to acquire fluency in other languages. Yeah. Oh, I agree, 100%. Anyhow, Father Murphy, he would have gone to a French college in the 18th century, probably Bordeaux, that was the largest one, maybe Mm. Paris for further studies, or Montpellier if he was specializing in medicine. Because as I said, a lot of these priests, when they returned, they had to practice either as medics or as pharmacologists or pharmacists, herbalists, apothecaries, if you like. Um, 
Law is a different matter because you have the English common law here in Ireland, whereas in the continent it would have been Roman law. Oh, I see. But you would have had others who specialized in canon law to deal with canonical issues in the Irish church. Many of these priests, as I said, had to support themselves either through teaching, grammar, the classics, literature, mathematics. And many of them did. Who would they have taught? And then you'd have had the spoiled priest, the man who never went on to ordination, returned. Oh, spoiled as in... He was called the spoiled priest. That was the Irish expression for him. Okay. Uh, But he would have been the hedge schoolmaster. Um, He would have gone as a layperson. Yeah, and returned as a layperson. But you also have, as I said, we have... Various letters, for instance, Daniel O'Connell's aunt, Gubnet O'Connell, mm. who married uh, Dennis O'Sullivan. He was an Irish officer in the Austrian service. And she went to join him in Vienna, and she was made a lady-in-waiting to the Empress Maria Theresa. Mm. Now, Gubnet, in a letter back to her brother, Morris the Hunting Cap O'Connell, she says how easy it was for her to learn German because... She had a good rudimentary education in Latin mm. from the local priest in Cahar Daniel. Okay. And she's so grateful to him. And also Father O'Grady, I think was his name. And she also mentions that he had given her a great foundation in mathematics. Right. Now, she also had French, which she spoke fluently because he had taught her. And this is something you find various travel writers visiting Kerry in the 18th century, whether they are French or English or even German, they all comment on the fluency of Kerry people and people in Westminster in generally, not just only in Kerry, but Cork and Limerick as well, their fluency in French or in Spanish Mm -hmm. and above all in Latin. Even the mountain herdsmen could speak in Latin with them and really? give them directions in Latin. And this was something they found amazing. And in my work on various Irish officers in the Austrian and the Spanish and French services, they all went abroad with a good command of French and Latin and mathematics. So they got that sound education at local level. Why was mathematics important? It's very important if you want a military career as an officer for logistics, for calibration, Mm. for artillery work and things like that. So, um, you know, military engineering as well. And many Irish did become military engineers. Okay. And we have, as I say, um, many records relating to their progress and their careers. But they had the foundations leaving Ireland in the penal times, foundations that were instilled in them by these priests who Mm -hmm. acted as their schoolmasters. Or by the spoiled priests, the men who returned without ordination but set themselves up as hedge schoolmasters. Okay. So... There was a great strong tradition in the classics and you even have that reflected in the names of people. If you look through the baptismal registers for Kerry, for instance, in the 18th century, you will see many children were given names like Athena or Alexander 
or Aeneas. Aeneas was a very popular name. Really? Even down to the last 50 years. And Augustus. We even had one of our Irish officers from Bally McElligot called Peter Julius Caesar <laughs> McElligot, who rose to become a brigadier general in the Austrian That's army amazing. in the 18th century. And his brother was called Ulysses. Ulysses? Yes. Really? So we have uh, names like that, and girls' names, as I said, like Athena or Julia or Cornelia mm. or Dorcas, D-O-R-C-A-S. That was also a popular name. Oh, yeah? So you have this love of the classics, and this is the classical world that informs the mentality. And it's an amazing world. That's interesting. I... You read about the church sort of falling in and love in and out of love with the classics, yeah. you know? Yeah. Because they wouldn't be uh, Catholic, obviously, the classics. Well, you see, again, if you're a classically Catholic and not a fundamentalist Bible-thumping type, mm. you understand St. Augustine's City of God, that great book, De Civitate Dei, the City of God in which St. Augustine argued that the pagan world of Greece and Rome was part of God's plan for the spread of Christianity. Oh, yeah? Because it was Greek and Roman philosophy that allowed mm. the Christians to develop their early theology. The medieval mind and the medieval world, people like Thomas Aquinas, for instance, St. Augustine of Hippo, they all drew upon the classical traditions of Greece and Rome in interpreting the scriptures. And remember that the medieval monks, the Benedictines particularly, they did not destroy classical texts, they preserved them. Mm. Even the most salacious pagan passages really? were preserved. No bi biblical prudery was <laughs> applied to them. So, you I, know... I read um, a bit of the Divine Comedy. Yeah. I read Inferno. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess Virgil gets a dispensation, doesn't Virgil, he? Virgil, yes. He's he not. Well, Virgil was, even in the old rite, the Tridentine rite, um, Virgil was regarded as a, a prophet. Was he? And the, the, the fourth eclogue of Virgil, which predicts, Virgil was talking about the Emperor Augustus, but the Christians felt that maybe this could also refer to the coming of Christ. Okay. So it was the practice in the old rite, the Tridentine rite, that at midnight mass, before the mass began, the prophecies were chanted. So you have the prophecies from Isaiah and various Old Testament prophets referring mm -hmm. to the, the Veni Emmanuel, the Emmanuel who's coming, the Christ child, but Virgil was also included. I didn't know that. And of course, at the Second Vatican Council, certain, shall we say, puritanical, <laughs> primitivist theologians said this was pagan and okay. we shouldn't be doing it. Just like in the 16th century, Luther and Calvin were saying this is pagan, we shouldn't be doing it. So, thankfully, Pope Benedict XVI, a few years ago, had mm. restored the prophecies to be chanted in full before midnight mass in oh, St. Did Peter's in Rome. It was wonderful to behold. Yeah, so good. Some good in the world. Isn't so you see, 
the the church you have to understand even in Ireland the catholic church in the 18th century it was very close to the old celtic church in many ways and celtic christian spirituality which is a mix of the pagan and the christian a mix of truism and christianity well, so, well, you know, we have, you know, the tradition of the holy wells and all of that. Yeah. And you have the various attributes of saints like Bridget or Chiron or Gobnet. Many of those attributes are druidic. There's one, my family are up in Ballyshannon, and mm-hmm. there's, a, I think, St. Cormac is somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. And he'd be of that style, yeah. I think. Yeah. And it's something people identified with. Yeah. Now, if you're a puritanical type of Christian, holy wells and things like that, it's too pagan. Okay. But if you're a classical Catholic, you incorporate it. It's all part of an organic tradition, just as so many of the attributes in the devotions to Our Lady are attributes of Athena. If you go, really. If you go to the continent particularly in Spanish and Italian churches, and yeah. in Belgium as well, you see it as well. You will often see statues of the Virgin Mary with embroidered cloaks reflecting the liturgical seasons. Oh. And they carry the statues in procession through the streets and all of that. That tradition is traced back to the Panathenaia festival, when the people of Athens annually had a procession of the goddess Athena statue through the streets of Athens and they presented her statue with a cloak, a beautifully embroidered cloak. So that's part of an old tradition from pre-Christian times that was incorporated by the early Christians in their devotion to Our Lady and it was something that people could identify with and it was part of uh, devotion. So all these things, even like the Vrot Breeder, the, the, the cloak of Bridget, it has Athenian, shall we say, connotations as well. Actually, the, the, I don't know the cloak. cloak. I know the story of, about of the, the cloak. flame, you know, the, 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 the sacred flame of Bridget at Kildare, etc. No, I don't. And all of that, it's wonderfully druidic, but it's incorporated into the Christian uh, system and it was in. There was nothing incompatible with Christianity, unless, of course, you're a puritanical Mm. fundamentalist, and this is where we come back to. So Father Murphy would have been dealing with people, going to their holy wells and doing their rounds, and the religious or spiritual cycle followed the cycle of the seasons as it was meant to be. And the liturgical texts that he would have used from the old rite would have again reflected the seasons. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, the, if you want to experience something of that in the Catholic Church nowadays, you have to go to a Benedictine Abbey. I don't even know where. Go down to Glenstall. Oh, yeah? Not far from here. There's a great book that I recommend, and it's by Sean Odin, and it's called Where Three Streams Meet. And it's a fantastic insight into the spirituality that informed Irish Christianity, where three streams meet, Sean Odin. He was a monk of Glenstall. He was a brilliant Celtic scholar, an Irish scholar. Right. 
And um, as I say, he did a lot of forensic work on this and seriously good stuff. And that's why you had a vibrant faith for people. And again, the attitude towards sexuality was not as strict as it was in the 19th century because you have to understand in the 19th century, Jansenism, which was a Calvinist-inspired heresy that crept into the French Catholic Church okay. and blossomed during the 18th century. It percolated into Ireland in the 19th century through Maynooth, which was the French college. Okay, But you have this curious mix of control freakism and control and ultramontane Catholicism from Cullen in his time and, you know, marshalling and regimenting Irish Catholics in a particular way. And you have, I think it was the writer Eamon Kelly who said uh, that the the sugar candy-coated saints from Italy replaced the more robust Irish saints in the devotions of Dublin Catholics. Oh, in like, the 19th uh, century, you had... Like St. Valentine, yeah, someone well, like that. Well, I wouldn't go with Valentine there now. I'd say someone more like, say, um, um, maybe Francis Xavier or Dominic Savio or something like okay. that. That they were introduced, you know, um, to the Irish church in the 19th century. And that, and, you know, the robust saints were sort of ignored... And was this, it was uh, to impose a conservative sexuality, was it? Well, that comes true from Jansenism. The Calvinist attitudes towards sexuality rooted okay. in the book of Leviticus came into fashion. Right. But Jansenism is a heresy by Catholic standards. Really? And yet it was promoted in the Irish church by so-called Catholic clergy. Right. So what would have... The approach but you being... see, they were they were they were under the cultural influence of Victorian England. Okay. And Victorian England was very prudish, and it was prudish because of the evangelical revival in the various Protestant churches in England in the middle of the nineteenth century. That spilled over into Dublin, and ideas of respectability at the emerging middle classes, many of whom were Catholic, and you know. They didn't want to let the side down, so to speak, and they tried okay. to assimilate and ingratiate themselves with the Victorian British establishment, and that's what you got, a strange creature, colonite Catholicism. So what would it have been like in the 18th century? Much different. Much more liberal? Yeah. Okay. We, the priest's just... attitude in pastoral theology, the priest was told in the 18th century... Remember your duty is to pray for your flock and to help your flock. So even if they do stray away from the norms of Christian morality in sexual matters, you don't condemn them. You have to be charitable. You have to be open and supportive. Christ didn't turn away the adulteress. Mm. Christ didn't turn away the Roman centurion who wanted him to cure his same-sex lover. 
I don't remember that story. Hmm? I don't remember that story. Well, you know the story where the Roman centurion comes to Christ and he says that his servant, now that's the English translation, oh, really? is sick. Yeah. And Christ says, I'll go to your house and cure him. And he says, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you under my roof, but say the word and my servant shall be healed. Yeah, yeah. The Greek word isn't servant, it's paidos, which was a certain category of servant, but they had a relationship, usually a same-sex relationship okay. with their master. I didn't realize that. Now, that's well-known, established theological point. Yeah. And as I said, that's that attitude of compassion towards others was at the core of pastoral theology in the 17th and 18th centuries. So we often had the case in the 19th and early 20th centuries here in Ireland where priests who were educated in Maynooth were notorious or Clonliffe were notorious for being very strict. Yeah, yeah. And indeed one would go so far as to say uncharitable. And there were cases where people were um, placed under suspensions or even excommunicated. So what did they do? They went to another parish where the priest had been educated in Salamanca or Bordeaux and they lifted the excommunication or the suspension. Really? No problem. So that went on. And you also had the case, say, where uh, people who had gone to, say, a Protestant friend's funeral were excommunicated by their Maynooth-educated priest. They'd go to the neighboring parish where the priest was from Salamanca and he said, well, there's no excommunication on you here. Okay. That happened quite a lot. And, what, what and the, other, the other, just to add to okay. that, very often in the cities, um, the religious orders like the Franciscans would have been very popular because people went to them if they had been badly treated or severely treated by Maynooth or a Clonliffe-educated priest. Okay. So that's a whole area of, shall we say, practice, how people got around things or dealt with those difficulties in the 19th and 20th centuries. Was it was it? all about, it was all about um, as I say, informing yourself. Yeah. And that's what they did. So... Just to wrap up, we, if we were to talk about Father Murphy, he would have been sort of a... I know there's a lot of individual difference with all this sort of stuff, but yeah. pastoral care would have been his... Pastoral his. care would have been at the core. That's what he was okay. doing. He was here to minister to people in very difficult circumstances. So, you know, as long as he can keep the spark of their faith alive and sustain them and support them in whichever way he could, he would have done so. Okay. But he was also, he'd have been committed to educating them because that was their key to progress. That's a and lot giving of the a, word. Giving a, an education to their children so that their sons and daughters could make a way for themselves 
abroad if they had to okay. go abroad. And many of them did. You see, in the 18th century, America was out of bounds to Irish Catholics. Really? Yes. How, is, why, because why the early American founding forefathers were mainly of Scottish and English Protestant mm. background, Puritan background, very Calvinist. Yeah. So for most Irish people in the 17th and 18th centuries, if they had to emigrate... The best opportunities open to them were in France or Spain or Portugal or Austria or Bavaria or the Habsburg Netherlands, present-day Belgium and Luxembourg. Yeah. That's where they went. That's mm. where Irish emigrants went. And it was only during the famine years in the 19th century that America finally opened up its doors to the Irish and you have droves of them going across the Atlantic then, or going to Australia as well. That was the other point. Yes. But the armies and the civil services, the administrations, the diplomatic services of the European Catholic powers, they were the destinations for many Irish in the 17th and 18th centuries. Okay. Mm. It was a very different political situation, Completely wasn't it? Completely different, yeah. It's almost the opposite of what we are told, you know? Yeah. In, in so many ways. In, yeah, exactly. It's much more nuanced, Yeah, much more interesting, therefore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for helping me understand the nuance. You're very welcome. Thanks very much. Okay, thank you. Thank you.